Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 211 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thank you so much for being here. I got a special guest today. Now, now all my guests are special and unique, and I love chatting with them and getting the stories. This guest, I was a little bit nervous. I'll be honest. There's a lot of pressure that uh, can come up when you're interviewing somebody who is so good at interviewing. You're like, am I going to do okay? How, how are we going to do? But this was such an enjoyable conversation, and I cannot wait to bring it to you. So who is my guest? My guest today is Debbie Millman. She's a graphic designer, but also the host of the Design Matters podcast and has been doing that for over 15 years now. Before podcasting was podcasting, she was doing this show. During this episode, we talk about how she did not have a creative upbringing or childhood and how that affected her. We also get into how she originally went to school for English and literature, not design, nothing creative there. Debbie then tells us a story about the teacher that gave her the confidence to start exploring her creativity and the trajectory that that set her on. She also shares with us the annual report cover that was really influential to her. And then we get into the decade of failure, so she calls it, but also the moment that it all turned around. She then shares with us a story about a Star Wars project that she was a part of that just did not go as planned. And it all started with the pre-meeting high fives in the parking lot. Danger warning, the pre-meeting high fives. I loved this interview. Debbie is so genuine and shares these stories right from the heart. And I cannot wait for you to hear it. So I will stop talking now. And ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. My guest, Debbie Millman. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field. And we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Debbie. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Terrific. Surviving quarantine as we all are. Yes, yes. It's been uh, eight weeks for me in quarantine. I mean, or in, you know, staying at home, sheltering at home. Yeah, sheltering at home. I'm about six weeks, so feeling the crazy set in just a little bit. Um, First question I have to ask you is, are you ready for a quickie? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So let's start with the toughest question first. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, My name is Debbie Millman, and I am a designer, an author, an educator, and host of the podcast, Design Matters. It's almost like that wasn't really necessary, is it? You've been around for a while. You've been on top of the game in the podcasting world. Um, So well done there. Thank you. Thank you very much. So at the beginning of the Quickie Podcast, we kick it back in time, and we dive back into your childhood. And I want to ask you, Debbie, what was your childhood like? Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that pointed you in this career path? No. 
<laughs> Very <laughs> matter of fact. <laughs> um, no, my childhood was um, a matter of survival. I had a very uh, challenging upbringing and uh, was glad to get out of the house by the time I went to college at 18. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not an environment that was conducive to um, feeling good about oneself or feeling like you were um, prepared to take on the world. Mm-hmm. So then what do you think sort of lit that creative fire within you? Did you have a an aunt or an uncle that was in that industry that sort of introduced you or showed you what it could be? Or was there really a teacher that lit that fire with you? Um, I definitely had teachers that lit the fire. Um, I had teachers that changed my life. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm setting up a scholarship program at my alma mater because of the professor that was the first person in my life that really gave me a sense that maybe I was smart. And that is something that not only will I never forget and be eternally grateful for, but I think more importantly, she taught me just by showing me how to be a good teacher. And so that's something that I've taken into my own practice as an educator and feel that her example has helped me become um, the educator that I am. Mm-hmm. So, so when you went to college, did, were you initially pursuing a art or design or creative direction or what did you start with? Um, I didn't really have any sense of what I could be. I didn't really have a sense of possibility. Mm -hmm. I majored in English literature and minored in Russian literature and often joke now that I have a college degree in reading. (laughs) But but I did have uh, a really transformative experience on my college newspaper, working on my college newspaper as a senior. And I was the editor of the arts and features section. And that is what ultimately fueled my introduction to design as I had to um, not only edit and, and create the paper sort of thematically, but I also had to, as, as it was said back then, put the paper together. And so that was in 1982 and 1983, so very sort of old school layout and paste up, but I had to learn on the job how to create a newspaper. Um, and so that really was my first foray into design and ultimately fueled both my love of design and my love of editorial. That's incredible. So what, what do you think this teacher saw in you? to encourage you to continue in that creative direction or what, what did she do to really ignite that creative fire for you? Well, she, she really thought that, and I, and she did this with everybody. So I have no illusion that, that she thought that I was special. I think she appreciated curiosity and was rewarding of curious questions when she heard them. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really forced or it encouraged or inspired people to want that feedback from her. So it pushed people, especially me, who wanted that approval from her as well, to try to search for really curious questions that would result in her saying something like, what a great question. <laughs> <laughs> 
And would you say that in that sort of... You live on that for days. So it was it in that like self-discovery and working on generating those sort of really unique creative questions that you found yourself looking at design closer? Mm, I, I think that would be a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> she was an English teacher um, and was teaching English literature. Um, and back then I really didn't know that I wanted to go into design. I only really made a decision to pursue that as I was graduating because it was my only marketable skill doing layout and paste up. And that was my first job in, in the, the real world, so to speak, was doing layout and paste up for a magazine at for $6 an hour. That was my, that was my job. So I think that rather she, she just inspired a sense of my having potential. Mm-hmm. So that allowed you to sort of explore that, but she gave you the, the confidence to explore that and you'd never felt that before. Correct. Awesome. Now, is there one particular design or piece of art or illustration or something that stands out as the most influential piece that you've seen in your early days, in your early career, something you saw and has just stuck with you since? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in 1989, uh, a, a design firm called Frankfurt Gibbs Balkind designed a cover of an annual report when Time and Warner merged. Um, and so the annual report was used as a vehicle to answer the question, why? Why did they merge? And as a result, the cover was a big word, why? And then there were computer manipulated images. The annual report was done in fluorescent ink. The cover was done in fluorescent ink as was internal pages. And I saw that in 1989 and had never, the world had never seen anything like that before. The world had never seen an annual report used really as a storytelling device as a metaphor, and I was completely blown away by it, so much so that it resulted in my pursuit of a job there, which took, I think, nine months to get. And uh, leaving the, the business that I had with a partner and, and starting a completely different path in my life. Wow, so definitely influential. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. I still have several copies of that annual report and talk about it in presentations and show it to my students. And everybody now, when they see it, especially young people that weren't even born at the time it was published, look at it, sort of scratch their heads and like, what's the big deal? But at the time, it really broke every rule in what people were used to seeing in terms of an effective persuasive annual report. It changed the world of graphic design for sure. Mm -hmm. So you could almost say that that is what design has continued to do. It's always out there to challenge and to change what people are used to seeing. I would like to think that, sure. Yeah. I'd love it. Best day. It doesn't always do that, but it certainly, (laughs) back to that word potential, has the potential. Definitely. Um, Debbie, who are some of the designers and the brands that you currently look up to um, or closely follow? And what about them do you like? Uh, Well, in terms of the designers, uh, Emily Oberman, uh, she's been making great work now for 
30 plus years. Uh, she started uh, working for Tibor Kelman and worked at Emin Company for many years and then left to start her own design firm with a partner for 17 years. And the company was called Number 17. And now she's a partner at Pentagram. And I think her work always provides a combination of really beautiful, impactful design, but always with a bit of wit, a sense of humor, double entendre, tongue in cheek. There's always a a really beautiful element of humanity embedded in it. Uh, She's been doing the Saturday Night Live credits for, I don't know, 25 years or more. Um, She has done everything from records to real estate. Um, She's just a brilliant, brilliant designer. I also really admire and am inspired by another Pentagram partner, Paula Cher. Paula has been making great work for six decades, five, six decades. Mm -hmm. And she has in, in every decade of her life transformed the tapestry of design and she's still making great work. And I don't believe she's even reached her peak yet. She's also a painter. And so she's succeeded in two very different uh, careers, both as a graphic designer and a visual communicator, as well as a fine artist. And I find that incredibly inspiring. Mm-hmm. I actually interviewed Paula about two, I want to say the episode went up about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, and she had also mentioned Emily with this question. So I can definitely see it all tied together there. So the next few questions I have for you, Debbie, take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons. Um, and I want to really pull those stories out and share those with the listeners. Got a couple of those and then we'll turn it around and we'll finish up in a happy place. Okay. So what has been the most challenging period of time in your creative career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through that? Well, it was through um, my the entire decade of my 20s and into my early 30s. Um, mostly I didn't really have any sense of what I could be, why I could be it, how to be it. Um, and I call that the decade of my 20s the decade of rejection and uh, failure, (laughs) experiments in rejection and failure, Mm -hmm. Um, because I just kept trying to go down different paths that I found there to be just tremendous obstacles. I found it to be a world that was not um, an easy one to navigate. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any confidence. I didn't have any self-esteem. That's not a good place to start to try to make a life for oneself with meaning. And, and where does this fit in with the um, with your first job sort of in that design field? Is this similar timing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I graduated college in 1983. So from 1983 to 1995. So that's 12 years of really challenging, ego-deflating hardship. Mm-hmm. Just And just not ever feeling like I was going to find my place, 
or that I could be successful or I would be able to work in an environment where I was seen and appreciated. So it was a really challenging time. And I, you know, I tell people that are having a hard time in their twenties and thirties to, to not give up because I didn't really start my career, any real successful career until I was 33 years old. Mm -hmm. This sounds like similar timing to going back to that conversation that I had with Paula, where during that era, that time, it was challenging, especially for a woman in the design field. Do you feel some of that played into this or? I, I never really, well, Paula was working in a very corporate environment. She was, almost famous from day one in terms of her talent. You know, I don't have that. I didn't have that kind of talent. So I didn't have a a way of even navigating through success. I was just navigating through failure. And Paula was working in a very male dominated business. The fact that she was even able to do what she did then is a testament to her extraordinary talent. Um, for me, I didn't think that any of my failures were based on my gender. I just assumed that they were based on me, myself, Debbie Millman. I didn't see this as, oh, this is happening because I'm a woman. And I don't think it was. I did have a number of instances where I was me too'd, you know. I had three different incidences of sexual harassment. Um, which was something that you almost expected back then. Mm-hmm. Um, that behavior was not in any way um, policed. So it happened all the time. And But I never saw my failures as gender-based. I always saw them as Debbie-based. Mm-hmm. So you said that that was, you know, about a decade, 10 or 12 years of just sort of struggle and dead ends and trying to find your way and your place and what felt right. Um, What was the moment where you felt that 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 switch flicked and that turned around for you? Probably when I started working at Sterling in 1995. Um, I had experienced a little bit of success in branding, which I came to quite by accident at the previous job I had, which was at Interbrand, um, where I suddenly realized that I was actually good at uh, business development. I was good at selling. and But I was in a, an environment where I was not happy and nobody was happy around me. And the company, I actually started at a company called the Schechter Group and they were owned by Omnicom and then merged into Interbrand. And so while I had achieved a little bit of success selling projects, um, the environment was so toxic that even when I was offered an opportunity to have the office next to the CEO and potentially um, promoted, I decided I chose to leave when I was able to find another job just because it was such a toxic environment at the time. Um I know for a fact that things have changed quite dramatically at Interbrand because I have lots of friends that work there now. But at that time, back in the early 90s, it was a real shit show. 
<laughs> my, my boss just walked out one day. Just like never came back. <laughs> so, just see you later. I'm out. That and he was a partner. He just left on a Friday and never came back. Um, so so it was really tough. But when I got to Sterling, I was able to bring what had been the beginnings of success at doing something and selling into an environment where not only did they really need me to do that, but they appreciated my doing that. And the founder of Sterling, um, he and I formed a, a partnership that was based on trust and mutual admiration. And ultimately I worked there for 20 years, 20 plus years. And, um, and that changed my life in every way. Yeah. So that's a massive turnaround moment for you where it sort of felt like you found that place that just felt right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people ask me what kept me going. Why did I keep trying? And, and I've given a lot of thought to that question. Um, and ultimately I think that my hope at something better for myself, a hope at a better life was bigger than my shame or humiliation at failing. Yeah. And, and that's really what kept me going. Yeah, I've heard that the one of the terms that I sort of go by is that the first time you do anything, it's likely going to be bad. So just if that's what you want to do, just keep going. Just get started. Get the bad one out of the way and just keep going till you get to the good one. Well, I mean, yes, that's true. But think about our our humanity. I mean, we are born not knowing how to do anything. And there's very little that we do that we attempt to do and, and as as babies and do well, you know, we can't, <laughs> so true. you know, in a, in a bathroom, we can't eat by ours. We can't feed ourselves. We can't walk. We, we have to learn how to do all of these things. And we crawl before we stumble and we stumble before we walk. And that's a good metaphor for how to, I think, assess any effort where you will, if you assume that you're only going to be good at something that you try, or you only allow yourself to try something you think you're going to be good at, I think you limit what's possible. Couldn't agree more. And so with the timing there was right around the end of your time at Sterling there where you started um, with design matters and started thinking about that and planning about that. What brought that on? Well, that wasn't at the end of at the end of Sterling. That was actually in the first half of my experience at Sterling. I had felt because I was finally successful at doing something at Sterling. I pretty much gave up all my side endeavors, which which were really just pleasure endeavors, drawing, writing, all of the things that I think really fulfill a person. I, I all but gave those up because I was so um, intoxicated with being successful that I just wanted to do it all the time. I was like, wow, I'm good at this. So I'm going to give up everything else 24 <laughs> seven. And, and that was great for the business. And um, I definitely was, was proud and excited about what I was creating, but about eight, nine years in, I started to feel like I was losing my creative spirit and was offered an opportunity to start a radio show on the Voice America Business Network, which I thought was a job offer, which was really just an opportunity to pay them to produce a show for me. But I was so <laughs> desperate at that time to be doing something that was 
non-commercial and really creative that I, I took a jump into doing that and started planning it in 2004 and launched Design Matters in 2005, which for the first few months was strictly a, a live radio show. Um, but then because people couldn't always listen to it when it was live, um, my dear friend, Brian E. Gomez Palacio, one of the co-founders of Under Consideration, which created Speak Up and Brand New and the Brand New Conference, she recommended that I put the show up on iTunes. And so that's what I did. And it inadvertently became the world's first design podcast. <laughs> that's incredible. What's the term? Happy accidents, happy little accidents, something like that. That's awesome. Um, I want to get a little bit more specific now, Debbie, and I want you to take us to a story about a specific design or project that you were a part of that didn't go well, um, it didn't bring the desired result. Uh, what was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Uh, well, one of the, the most um, difficult story that I can share about working in branding was when... <laughs> was when I was working with with the team at Sterling on the on the design of Star Wars packaging and merchandise um, for Skywalker Ranch and Lucas licensing. We were working on Attack of the Clones episode two, um, merchandising and and the entire world of um, toys and action figures. And it was an amazing, amazing project. And I'll never forget the day that I got the call because I thought they had to be making a mistake and thinking that we were capable of doing something like this. But we went down to Skywalker Ranch and we pitched the business and we got it. It was a miracle. We got it and started working on the design. And that was at a moment when Star Wars was looking to go from being seen episodically, which was how they'd been seen. And so this was way before episode two was launched. So we had episode four, five, and six in the market. And then we had episode one come out all those years later. And then they were planning on this three episode arc. And then obviously going into the um, episodes after uh, four, five, and six. So they were looking at, rather than looking at things episodically, they were really looking at Star Wars as a saga. And so we were tasked with doing this packaging and we were all big Star Wars fans. I mean, I went to see Star Wars episode four in the theater in 1977. I wore a May the Force Be With You t-shirt all that summer. Um, and then there were other folks on the team that were Star Wars collectible aficionados. So we had one one really wonderful young man who kept all of his figurines in the boxes so that they could be never removed from box NRFB. He, you know, dusted them off every Saturday on his shelves. We had a group of people that were really passionate about the brand. And we spent a lot of time working on that first phase of design went to Skywalker Ranch. We're so proud of the work that we'd done pre-meeting. I remember we were high-fiving each other in the Skywalker Ranch parking lot because we were so proud of ourselves for having gotten there. And then we went and did the meeting and we started showing the work and you could see after the first design, the second option, the third option, sort of their faces scrunch up and 
They were um, really perplexed at what we were showing. And then finally just were like, we don't get what you're showing and we don't, we're not feeling this. And we started to be, I think as most designers are, you know, try to protect the work, defend the work. This is why you should like it. This is, you know, in case you're not seeing this, we're going to point this out and got worse and worse and worse and worse. And that had never happened before. I had never been in a first phase design meeting where basically the client hated everything. Oh my gosh. And, you know, I've had meetings where some is considered better than others or, you know, it's, it's the beginnings of something that they're seeing and we need to go back and refine that. But this was, this was arguably one of the most important design meetings of my life with the certainly one of the most famous global brands I had ever worked on and they hated everything. And in that moment, I had to make a decision because I was the president of the design group. What are we going to do here? Should we keep trying to persuade them to see what maybe we don't think they're seeing? And I, or, or do we, do we do something else? And at that moment I decided to stop the meeting. I'd never done that before. And I said, you know what? Clearly we haven't hit the mark at all here. Tell us what we haven't done for you and give us a week and we'll come back and show you new work, entirely new range of work. And I later found out from our client that if I hadn't done that, we would have been fired on the spot. Wow. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think designers think about is, well, what happens when you show your work and the, and the client doesn't like anything? Like, are you prepared for that? And that really instilled in me a sense of being sort of what I, what I ultimately refer to as relentlessly prepared, just constantly thinking about every possible scenario. What will happen if the client doesn't like anything? What will happen if they only like the things you don't really like? What happens if they ask you a question that you're not prepared for? So I always now, when going into meetings and for the rest of my career at Sterling, always try to consider every possible scenario, to visualize every possible scenario and be prepared for any possible result. And that empowered me to feel a bit more um, confident about what we were presenting, why were we presenting it. Um, you're never going to be able to convince a client to like something that they don't like. It's sort of like going to a department store and trying on an outfit and coming out to the mirror and the department store sales clerk saying, uh, oh, you look amazing when you don't think you look amazing at all. Nobody's going to ever be able to convince you of something that you don't believe. True. And unless maybe you're a scientist, <laughs> mathematician, um, where it's much more sort of empirical. In any case, that really taught me to prepare for every, to, to prepare and visualize for every scenario and, and to really have an understanding of my work in a way that I feel is, is much more strategic. You know, I think strategy takes a lot of the subjectivity out of design mm -hmm. and, and really understanding how and why you arrived at a, a visual communication is, is as important as the visual communication. In, Absolutely. In, 
That's incredible advice, not just designers, but for anybody. You know, if you're going into those meetings, be prepared for you know the design or the client not to say that this is amazing. Yeah. What are the uh, other options? Yeah. Exactly. And you know, we only know what we know and what we don't know. You know, I, I say this all the time. We know. I know that I'm a woman. I'm a Scorpio. I'm a left-handed. Um, I I know that I'm what I know what I don't know. I know what I um, that I that I can't read music. That I tragically don't speak any of the languages. But I don't know what I don't know. We we all don't know what we don't know, and we only can have others make us aware of that. And so, if you can do that with your team, challenge each other. What are we missing here? Or how do we best explain this? Or what aren't we seeing that we should be seeing? That then I think really creates a, a better foundation for a successful meeting. So true. Great advice. Um, I'm emotionally attached to this story now, so I need to know what happens when you go back a week later. Oh, when we go back a week later, we get <laughs> it out of the park and we did great work. We went from what at the time was a very dark color palette for um, action adventure films and films in space. Everything was very dark and black to this very sort of light blue um, Palpatine kind of color palette that was, um, I think, transformative. And we were able to not only do what I consider to be really great work, um, but we also um, created a, a vehicle for that category to be transformed. Awesome. So last question. Find the packaging. You can still, it's still, it's highly collectible on eBay. Um, you can still get some of it on Amazon. So it's really, it's, it's still, it's really a, a very fulfilling experience for me. And this was episode two? Uh, yeah, Attack of the Clones. Awesome. So my final question just about this story here. Describe for me the feeling when you are show, you're going to this second meeting. The first one was a dud. You go to the second meeting and you're showing your work and they go, this is amazing. What's that? What is that feeling? Describe that for me. Well, we, we weren't going to high five right there in the conference room, but we were very proud. I mean, it was more of a, whew, we dodged that bullet. There was a real sense of relief. Um, but there was also a sense of, you know, why couldn't we have done this right off the bat? So it was, a, it was bittersweet. But also, you know, we had a lot of pride in the fact that that work was well received and ultimately did go to market and did do really, really well. Mm -hmm. So this meeting was definitely a post-meeting high five in the parking lot. Instead, of <laughs> I don't think we did it in the parking lot. I think maybe if we did it while it was on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, okay, Debbie. What uh, I got one more that's uh, around the sort of struggles, the tough stuff, and then we'll get into the happy place. Um, what is something that you're struggling with in your creative career right now? Um, struggling with a couple of things, um, when and how to say no in a way that feels right, um, how to best manage my time, um, especially here in quarantine, sheltering in place, you know, how do you create a routine that feels healthy, 
how do you maintain a sense of purpose? Those are things that I am thinking about. Um, realizing that as I get older, I have to make decisions about how to start things, you know, if not now, when, yeah, those are so big, big existential questions right now. Awesome. Um, Okay, I'm going to turn this bus around for you, Debbie. Tell us about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of, one that just makes your heart sing. Um, that would be work that I've done with the Joyful Heart Foundation. I'm on the board of the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is a foundation that uh, the actress and activist Mariska Hargitay began. Uh, she's the star of Law & Order SVU. And we are the organization is committed to eradicating sexual violence, uh, domestic abuse and child abuse and sexual, any, any type of sexual violence and also eradicating the rape kit backlog that exists in our, in our society. And I've been working with them for, I guess about five or six years, maybe a little more. And I'm really proud of the work we're doing because I feel like we are making a difference. We are, uh, eliminating the rape kit backlog, certainly lessening it in all 50 states. That's a big, big, big part of the activist work that we do. And um, I think we've helped change the conversation in our culture about, around sexual violence. And, and I'm really, really proud of that work. And I feel like it helps make my life make sense. Your work from the heart for sure. What is the... Um what is the rape kit backlog? I, I wasn't even aware there was this backlog. What is that all about? Well, for anybody that's listening that wants to learn more about it, Mariska directed a, or Mariska created, she didn't direct it. She created and, and is in a documentary about the rape kit backlog called I Am Evidence. So when a person is raped uh, and they go to the hospital, they are given a rape kit, which is usually uh, anywhere from a four to a 10 hour ordeal where um, evidence is taken off the body. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it is a gruesome experience. And all of that evidence is put into a rape kit. And apparently um, there have been rape kits all over the country that are in storage and warehouses that have been contaminated. Um, and so there's a backlog of rape kits in just almost every state in the United States. And that, that those back, those rape kits are evidence of a person's rape. And with DNA evidence now, um, so big a part of our way of apprehending criminals, those rape kits go a long way in helping to catch uh, serial rapists serial offenders. And the fact that there's been this backlog means that so many people that could be uh, apprehended aren't. And so that is work that we are committed to, to doing. Wow. I was not even aware of that at all. Sheesh. Um, that's brilliant work. And we are big fans of um, Law and Order SVU and the terms that you're talking about, I know exclusively from watching Law and Order SVU. Exactly. exactly. Well, that's why Mariska started the foundation. She mm -hmm. started getting letters shortly after she started on the show 20 years ago, um, asking for resources, thanking her for her advocacy for bringing these topics 
even into public commentary, these things were never talked about. And, and she's really changed the world with her work in this area. Wow. Thank you so much for part of it. Uh, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention and letting us know about that, Debbie. That's great. Um, okay, let's wrap it up here with what I like to call the ask it forward question, Debbie. This is where I have a question for you from my last guest. They had no idea who they would be asking this question of. And then you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. Okay. So my last guest was Jeff Deneme. He is the co-founder of Haunted Zoo and Hot Hive Studios out of Windsor, Ontario, a good old Canadian boy. And he has... So, so let me preface this just a little bit. With this Ask It Forward question, sometimes they are really fun, off the cuff, what's your favorite pizza kind of questions. Sometimes they're very deep and thoughtful and, um, you know, very, very important surrounding issues or, or whatever that may be. So his is um, definitely the former. So his question for you is, what do you think about prepared seafood dishes and chefs leaving the tails on the shrimp for you to take off? I have absolutely no issue with that. It makes it easier to pick up. And Ooh, I never thought of that. Yeah, I think that's why they do it. <laughs> Perfect, because then you can it, get in it, there. It makes for a much neater experience. It's like a built-in handle. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Debbie is fine with the tails on the shrimp. Debbie, what is the ask it forward question that you would like me to ask the next guest? Um, I'd like you to ask the next guest, what is their first memory of being creative? Oh, I like that one. Great question, Debbie. So I will ask that question of the next guest and you'll have to listen to the episode for the response. And that is the end of the Quickie Podcast. Debbie, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate your time here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you are liking what you are hearing on the Quickie Podcast here, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening, and leave me a rating or a review or and a review. Uh, I appreciate them. I see them. And uh, it just helps others find the show. Thanks again, and we'll see you later.